0: Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley. Welcome to Thread, Season 3, Episode 5. Thread is God's Word tying together all the pieces of your life as a person in ministry. It's a place for believers who want to maximize the impact of their lives on others. In Season 3, we're moving through 2 Corinthians. And today's lesson covers chapter 1, verses 23 through chapter 2, verse 11 where we return to the sacred nature of all relationships, and especially relationships with people in the body of Christ. Well, as we enter into this lesson, let me ask you right now to just pull up in your memory your very best relational moment. Uh, A time in your life when you had a relationship that was life-giving and sacred. Uh, for me, one of my best seasons of life was with a group of guys. We had a tiny circle, of probably four or five, and we'd come together to plant a church in Manila. And these guys were from all kinds of different countries. One was from Iran, one was from Colombia, uh, Filipino, but of Lebanese background and different people in the group. A lot of different backgrounds, but what drew us together was our walk with Christ and our desire to be a light to our part of Metro Manila. And we spent so many hours together. We were praying together. We were dreaming of a healthy, life-giving church that was better than anything any of us had ever been to and been a part of. We just wanted a solid Christian community. And we established it among ourselves. Our families became blended. And we were, uh, it, it was just like, 10, 15 years of just the most beautiful relational closeness. And I have, I've just never felt that secure and never had a circle that tight in my life. I loved every second of it. And those are still great relationships today, but we don't live in the Philippines anymore. So all of us have gone on to do other things, you know, life together. That's a core Christian concept. It's one of the core things that's different about the kingdom of God You know, in the world, it's you alone and you trying to make a name for yourself and you, you know, having to be tough and strong and self reliant. In the kingdom, it's no, don't be self reliant. You know, we rely on the Lord, but we pull those resources out of the body of Christ because we are the body of Christ. So when you need security, yes, pray directly, ask God to give you directly security, but He'll also give you His security through people He'll put around you. So I kind of think of it as uh, you can't love God directly. You know, it's easy to say, oh, Lord, I love you. I love you when God doesn't really need much, you know, but people need. And so what I think it is, is in order to love God, I have to love people. And it kind of reflects. It's like a a ricochet of some kind that I shoot at this and that it goes a different direction. So, you know, Jesus said, I was in prison. You visited me. That meant so much. And they said, you've never been in prison. He said, yeah, but they have. And you visited them, and that came to me. So I don't think, you know, it's, it's easy to say, I love you, I love you, Lord. He's not standing in front of you, and it's this vague thing we can feel really great about. But loving people is loving the Lord, and the Lord will love you through people. And he will allow you to love him and serve him through serving people. And it's just a beautiful concept. In the body of Christ, we are one. And there's a strength of the body coming around us. It's just beautiful. But, you know, one of the teachings of Jesus that we almost never talk about. I've actually only heard it mentioned one time in my life from the pulpit, like really taught. And that is the way Jesus redefined family. All over the world, family is about your genetic bloodline. And especially in the Middle East, where our faith is birthed. This is a huge central concept. You know, it's like there's an old joke that in a Middle Eastern family, it's me against my brother. And, but it's me and my brother against my cousin. And it's all of us against any outsiders. And, you know, that's not just Middle East. That's how the world has always been. And so here comes Jesus teaching rabbi in a culture that absolutely prizes blood family even as a doctrinal distinctive it's like, this is how we're related to God. We are blood relatives uh, of Abraham. And so Jesus' blood mother and his brothers by blood come to interrupt his teaching time. And everyone informs him that his, your family's here. And then he shocks everybody with these words. You are as much my family as they are. You are my mother's and my sister's and my brother's. He redefined family. He redefined family as spiritual family, and he gave it the priority that he he was so quick to add that, of course, we should do our duty to our blood parents. And we can, I mean, we're not dishonoring our bloodline, but for almost everybody, that's the end of family, you know. But friends are family you choose, and the body of Christ is the family that God gave you. And we, we've we wrapped our arms around this because the Lord has had us in the nations all of our marriage. And we have not had our blood family there. And I have a wonderful family, both sides. And and Sherry also has a great family. We love them and we stay connected to them the best we can. But the family we live with every day, the family that my kids were raised with, they are from every culture that you can imagine, every language group, like tons of of mix in our circle but they our kids grew up calling all these people aunt and uncle and it it took them sometimes until their uh, college years to ask some of their <laughs> aunts and uncles how are we related you know are we even related like by blood and to realize no we're not we're not in any way related by blood but we're related by the lord but it's the family honestly i think if my kids got in trouble they would run to a lot of the people that they grew up with who have been everything an uncle would ever be in their life and who would truly sacrifice for them and who stay in touch with them. And it's the family God gave us. And it's beautiful. when we wrap our arms around that. We, we love that family as we love our blood family. Paul is a disciple of Jesus, and he took this teaching to heart. The body of Christ is just as much family as blood kin. The entire book, this book we're reading, 2 Corinthians, it only came about because of Paul's relationship with the people in Corinth that became the body of Christ. And because he has a fear now that his relationship with them has been placed in jeopardy by the actions of a lead troublemaker in their circle who has gathered some people to himself. But Paul values his relationship with these people, and he refuses to let a relationship with a Christian be damaged. I mean, all relationships are vital, and everything that happens in our life will come through our relational network. But a relationship with a believer, a fellow believer, someone who is also in Christ, they have been born again just like you have. They have the same Holy Spirit that you have inside of you. This is a sacred thing. Jesus has made us brothers and sisters, true brothers and sisters with his blood. And just as you don't give up on a brother or cast a sister away, you don't walk away easily from a relationship with another Christian. And Paul gets it. He is a great model of relational integrity. For him, there are no disposable relationships. I mean, it's really hard to get out of a relationship with him. And in this passage that we're going to read, we watch Paul entering into the agonizing work of peacemaking. Peacemaking is such a noble work because peacemaking is is not, okay, it's like this. If I do something wrong to somebody, my job is to go to that person. This isn't really peacemaking. It's repenting. I need to go to that person and say, I am wrong. Please forgive me. I am wrong. What I did to you was wrong. Please forgive me and let's restore our relationship. Peacemaking is different. You didn't do it. It's, it's somebody else has done it. And you could very easily wash your hands and say, all right, forget that. I don't need this hassle in my life. But it's the body of Christ and you won't let it fester. You can't. For the sake of the body of Christ, you cannot let this thing get out of control. And so you go to that person and you swallow your pride and you approach them humbly and hopefully they know that they are wrong and they will be, you know, they'll be shamed by your humility in coming to them. Well, you approach them with a low heart and a gentle heart and a sweet spirit, and you work to pull yourselves back together again. It's a beautiful thing, I, but I tell you, it's it's an aggravating thing sometimes, and because it's it's petty. Sometimes it's based on insecurity of the person. Sometimes it's a total misunderstanding, almost all the time, or they've confused. Uh, an action with the meaning of the action. A uh, look on your face with what you were thinking, which they don't know. None of us know what another person is thinking or feeling. So let's look. We're going to look at verses 2 through 10. Actually, let's pick up in verse 1. Paul says, I determined that within myself that I would not come to you again again. And it be in sorrow. Because if I make you sorrowful, who is there to make me glad? Okay, uh, we know the background, okay? We've talked about this before. Uh, Paul's been through a lot of pain with this group. This uh, person has gotten up in Paul's absence and has begun to speak evil of Paul. And he is winning others away with his words against Paul. And he has gotten a little group together and made himself more the leader And but there were people in the church that knew this was wrong, but they were being silent. And Paul has written to the church and he has laid out his case and um, he was supposed to show up for this big showdown meeting. He did not come. He sent this letter and the letter has found its place in the heart of the spiritually mature people in the church and they have read it and they have thought about it and they have risen together and they have taken control of their church again. And they have pulled it back from this carnal leader and they've rebuked him in public and they have moved against him as a group. And so now that's the situation. So Paul's writing them to prepare them because he really does want to come and visit. But he doesn't want it to be this big painful thing because he loves them and he does not want to fight. I mean, some people just seem to love fighting, especially in a church. And Paul hates it. He does not want to fight. He knows that some conflict is necessary because we have to crush some old ways of thinking with Bible truth. And then when the truth comes in, I don't know, you know, it's conflict. And so you have to push on the truth and there's a little bit of resistance. And we just all get through it together as long as the body of Christ holds together. And um, in this case, the body of Christ, hallelujah, it did hold together. And there has been correct pressure from mature people on the life of this person, and he's been taken out of leadership. He had no business ever being in leadership, but he's no longer a threat to the church. Paul looks at this brother, and he sees him as a true Christian. He's a Christian, but he has a deficient formation in his character. And this can be fixed if the man will humble himself and walk with Jesus. And listen to what Paul writes about this situation. Verse 3. I wrote, all of the, I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those of whom I ought to have joy. But have confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears. N- not that you should be grieved, but that you should know the love I have so abundantly for you. Now he's talking about that man. He says, but if anyone has caused grief, he's not grieved me. He's grieved all of you to some extent, but not to be too severe about this. Verse 6, the punishment that's been inflicted by the majority of you, that's sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, now you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a person be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for this man. And to this end also, I'm writing that I might put you to a test, whether you're obedient in all things, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. If indeed I have forgiven anything, I forgave it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices." Wow, so much humility, you know. So often we paint the other party in a conflict as being so terribly evil. And usually it's just a, a misunderstanding. You know, people's insecurity provokes all kinds of destructive behavior and loss of face can drive a really good person to ridiculous lengths to reestablish their status in a group. And I've seen this kind of stuff all my life, moving from churches to churches uh, in my ministry and teaching, as I have in so many different places. Discouraged people behave poorly. So we need to keep in mind that when we wrestle with the personality of another person, who is clearly a Christian, we mustn't treat them like an enemy. You know, the church is an amazing thing. It can survive bloody assaults many times. I mean, I live, my family lives in the 1041 Donations where most Christian persecution takes place. Christians are beaten. Their homes and churches are burnt. Sometimes they themselves are doused in gasoline and set on fire. And amazingly, the church can always survive this kind of attack. A church can even remain healthy with half of its members struggling against addiction or mental, mental illness or a host of other spiritual attacks I mean, half a congregation can be so messed up as long as everybody's honest about it. And they're honest with their struggle and they bear one another's burdens and they just move on. A church can handle that. A church can survive anything as long as it maintains relational integrity. Christians must keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And if they do that, God's power will flow. I learned about the power of Christian relationships for discipleship in my first year in pastoring our church in Manila. These were uh, huge days of spiritual growth in the Philippines. I mean, things have been written at a seminary level about the history of this. A new church was planted in the Philippines every eight hours, and this went on for more than 10 years. Uh, Some estimate 15% of the entire nation started attending born-again churches, and we were there for that. I mean, there were articles in the newspaper against it. It was that big a movement. And it became uh, very, very common for people to come to our, what was initially a small house church, and they would come to be born again. That's why they came, a friend who had gotten born again and had been so changed had reached out to their friend, and they brought them. It's like, look, it'll happen to you. You watch. You'll be changed. And they'd come to be born again. And it grew to the point that we had 25 many weeks, sometimes 35. This is every Sunday, and it doesn't matter what we're speaking about. They came already prepared to give their life to the Lord. So our biggest issue in those days, unlike my life now, you know, living in a, a very hard Place to even win one person to the Lord. But my life in those days was really about establishing systems of discipleship to handle that kind of a flow of people coming in the front door. Uh, And what we found was we didn't need, seems strange, we didn't need Bible studies as much as we needed fellowship. We set up cell groups in the earliest days of our church. We set up cell groups, and everybody went to one, but almost no one in our church knew the Bible very well. And so I, because of necessity, uh, I said to them, I really don't want you guys doing teachings. I'll teach. Once a week, we'll have teaching time, and everybody come, and I'll teach. Um, And we can ask questions, and we we can really understand the Bible. But in the home fellowships, I don't want those to be teaching times. All I want you to do is tell the truth about your life, and anyone who attends has to be willing to do that. So you tell the truth about your life, and then you pray for each other, and then you eat food together. And that's all I want you to do. And so we had no program other than that. And over the course of a year, I started watching people get off drugs, they quit smoking. Their marriages got fixed. They had it was like, man, this whole thing is fixing itself, and we had we started to have. By the end of the year, we had fifteen strong leaders that were like rock solid disciples, and that was you know in the year when we were like thirty five people just getting rolling. So now I had we had workforce, and they really knew the Lord. You could see it in their life; they're walking with Christ. So that just became our. Uh, initial basic training and discipleship was just osmosis. You get around healthy Christians and they'll take you to visit the sick. They will, and even, even strange things would happen. You'd be in these small groups. Let's say there's the guy next to you is there because his marriage is falling apart because he's committing adultery and he's got a whole nother family that he's set up. And that's why he came to the group was trying to get himself sorted out and Those groups would say, like when someone would tell their problem, they would turn to him and say, okay, you're next in line. You have to pray for them. And he would just be so puzzled. But he'd try. You know, he'd lay his hands on because we teach them, you know, put your hands on them. And they would lay hands and he'd say whatever words he could think. And it was like, good, you're on the path. And it just caught people up. And before you know it, we were having these big baptisms after service. And it worked beautifully. I think we've way overdone All the teachy-teachy thing. And you end up with people who have studied for 15 years, Bible study after Bible study after Bible. Oh, that's an awesome Bible study. That's a deep Bible study. That's a daily Bible study. Hey, all that is is food for doing stuff. You're supposed to do things outside of church and that little circle that we're all in. Relationships all by themselves are a powerful form of discipleship. But it only works when a church has unity. When a church loses, not just a church, when a team, when a marriage, when a family, when you lose your unity, the grace of God is hindered, and everything you want to do is under threat. Verse 11, Paul is very aware of Satan's devices. He does not fear persecution, but he has a very healthy respect for the damage that unforgiveness and division can do to a circle of believers. Divided, A divided Christian is a powerless Christian. And a church without unity is just a showy church. It'll focus on lights and sounds and performance because you do not have the engine of truth. You do not have the engine of the Holy Spirit working inside your fellowship the way it's supposed to. You have to have unity. While I'm on that subject, I think the lowest thing anyone can ever do in the ministry is to split a church. I would never be part of this. It's like splitting a family, and you create a wound that is hard to ever heal. Um, On top of that, anybody who does split a church founds a new church with anger and hostility as the root emotion. And wherever that root is, there's going to be fruit later. You're going to be dealing with conflict in that daughter church over and over again. We need to understand conflict situations are pregnant with possibilities. It's a chance for people to really listen because they're stirred up. They're paying attention. And you may have put your finger on a really big issue that we do need to deal with. We just have to learn to ease into those situations, not always avoid conflict, but to wade into it and say, okay, are there principles at stake and try to help bring peace, but also bring understanding and always take the high road. Even if it means you lose, lose, you'll win later. Take the high road. Don't get into the gutter with low road people and just go back and forth with them. You got to learn to tell a difference between times when you have to protect the flock and times when it's really just about you. You know, we can't let our pride get in the way of our ministry. So relational integrity, especially within the body of Christ, I think is a huge message. We all need to think about it. Go back through a list of our own relationships. If you've got anybody that you've got tension, uh, deal with that. You know, Be the first one. Make the first step. Do everything you can do. Everything that lies in you, the scripture says, to live at peace with all people. Well, that's all for now. It's a lot to think about. Um, please share the Thread podcast with your friends. There's buttons down below. You can do that. And you can subscribe and Thread will show up in your email inbox and don't forget to check out medialightonline.com because we've got online courses that we developed over the last year and these courses will help you find God's will, they'll help you grow personally, spiritually, as a leader and we're going to work to improve your communication skills 10x you're going to be great as a spiritual leader and someone who can speak out for the Lord, so this week expect God to use you you're the light of the world so shine on